Hi, this is Nick McCarville and Rowan DeCesar, and welcome to Level Playing Field. Welcome to Level Playing Field podcast. This is a podcast where we interview people who are LGBTQ and involved in sports. My name is Randy Boos and I'm your host. This week's episode is a double guest episode. I start out the show talking to Nick McCarville. Nick is a television personality who covers tennis and figure skating as well as some other sports. This episode we basically talk tennis though and figure skating. We also end the conversation talking about the Pride events that he's been a part of in the last year and a half with tennis and a lot of the open events, the Australian, French, Wimbledon, and U.S. Open. Australian Open starting next week. We talk Australian Open, the Pride events going on. At the end of the interview, he talks about the Glam Slam. I wanted to get more information, and that leads to my second guest. My second guest is Rowan D'Souza. He is the organizer for the Glam Slam. Basically what it is, and he'll go into detail about it, it is a. it takes place the... Last weekend of the Australian Open, it's a tennis tournament, it's so much more. Both guests happen to talk about Margaret Court. Margaret Court, obviously, a successful tennis player years ago. She has done a lot for tennis. She's also done a lot to hurt the LGBTQ community, though. And we talk about that with Rowan and with Nick. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Even with two guests, it's still under an hour. But without further ado, we'll start out with Nick and we'll end with Rowan. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk and looking forward to, I think we're going to have a pretty good conversation, right? I hope so. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> yeah. Before we talk about all the pride events you've been involved with, with tennis and, and just the tour in general, I really want to go over quickly how your love for tennis began. Did you play as a, a kid in high school, maybe? Yeah, I grew up in the hotbed, the tennis hotbed of Helena, Montana. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I actually don't know, Randy, where like the the ground zero of my love for tennis came from. I grew up in a very athletic family. Like sports was kind of what we did. I'm one of six, and I think that my parents very much just wanted us out and active, and probably out of the house. Um, but I took to tennis, I'd say when I was like seven, eight, nine, um, in the summers, there was a public parks, uh, summer lessons program. And I would go, it was just a couple blocks from where I grew up. So I would go there and, and I would ask my mom to sign me up for two or three hours versus most kids just came for one hour. So that was sort of the origin of my love for the sport. And I played, yeah, throughout high school. I didn't end up playing in college, but had a quote unquote competitive career in Montana um, before leaving for college in Seattle. You know, it's funny because I grew up playing tennis too. And even though I had my own struggles with sexuality, I've never considered tennis a sport that was would be hard for a gay person. Um, I know right now in the pros, there's a few out women on the tour. But men, obviously, there's still nobody out. Um, it wasn't until talking to Brian Bahaley during the U.S. Open that I really thought about why that might be. Why do you think that no one's come out, assuming there are people that are gay on the tour? Yeah, well, sure. So you mentioned you know, that there have been several women on the WTA tour and in professional tennis. And Brian Bahaley has, has really been someone who has chosen to step forward. He played in the pro ranks um, your listeners will know his name because you've had him on and he's done great work in the last couple of years since deciding to come out, Randy. I, you know, I, I think it's I think it's layered in a lot of ways. Tennis is a very individual sport and in that sense it can be very lonely, I think, for people. And you also don't feel necessarily like you have the support of a quote unquote team, where I think a lot of athletes around the world, you know, Robbie Rogers would tell you this, Jason Collins, that they kind of felt like maybe they had a, a little bit of a testing ground with their own team. And they also had the backing of a team versus telling the rest of the league on their own. And I think, you know, I think that's one big piece of it. I also think tennis is very global. 
And while that might sound very exotic and cosmopolitan, I, I think that the bigger tennis has become, I think it's been harder for people to, um, you know, really tap into individuality in the sense of feeling comfortable to speak out about who they are, because it's a very homogenous, you know, professional sports on the men's side remains a very heteronormative culture. And tennis is one of those sports. And it's very homogenous in the sense of these players have a locker room culture uh, as individuals where they interact with one another and then they go out and play this very competitive, you know, man to man sport uh, on the men's side. And, uh, you know, I think that all of that sort of swirls together to create this perfect recipe where it just hasn't been the right time, place or person to feel comfortable in coming out. But I also think I know that there's a lot of importance placed in that from an LGBT perspective, but I just think that what we can continue to do as a community, what you do with your podcast and what all, all of us do to continue to be open, have conversations, dialogue, and create a space where tennis is, uh, you know, even though we don't have this sort of one out men's player, it is a diverse world. There are plenty of us on tour who are queer. There are plenty of us who support uh, queer culture and especially the women who are out. And um, yeah, society moves very slowly, as we all know. And sometimes we move backwards. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's baby steps. And, and it, might, it might be that for a long time, to be quite honest. Do you think there's, because obviously coming out is so personal for everybody and there's all different reasons not to come out. But do you think the money issue with sponsorship is, plays a part anymore? Or do you think it's not really an issue? No, you know, maybe maybe it would have been when Brian was playing 15 years ago and Martina Navratilova certainly lost sponsors when she came out. But I think it's more just the um, almost the scarlet letter. And I just use that because um, if you come out as a man in professional tennis, that is going to garner so much media attention and it's going to take an individual who feels so secure in themselves and strong in who they are. I, th I think it's much more, less the sponsorship part of it, but much more sort of the every tournament they play, they feel like this is the um, banner that they have to fly or this is the, the person that they step into the tournament to be. And I think it would take someone very strong headed and comfortable in themselves to choose to share with us publicly that they are who they are, but then also have that wherewithal to say, I've said what I've said. I'm happy to have conversations or to meet you halfway with some of my personal life, but I'm also a pro tennis player. And I, I want to continue to do that because that to me is the bigger part. You know, the attention, you know, maybe some of the, some of, some of the social backlash that they might feel um, within the locker room. Yeah, and just that general, it's already what I was talking about earlier, it's already pressure packed enough to travel the world and to try to make a living as a pro tennis player. So then to add that extra layer of being out, um, being open about who they are sexually, uh, I think that would be, that That just adds a lot of pressure, I think, for them. Yeah, I'd imagine too, with every tour stop, you know, every other week or whatever it is for some of these players, having to reopen that conversation because the local media wants to talk about it. So I guess mm -hmm. it is probably a struggle it's not just a one and done. It's you're doing it every other week. Well, that's really well pointed. And, you know, like even this week, you're talking to me right now. I'm in Brisbane, Australia for one of the lead ups to the Australian Open. And they have they've got a great local media core here. You've got a few local papers that do really well. You have the National News Service. You have Channel 9, which covers the tennis during the Australian summer. But they only get these players for a few weeks a year. And that is the same when I go to Palm Springs and Miami and Charleston and Paris and London. And so you're right that these players oftentimes, no matter if they're being asked about forehands or about their personal lives, a lot of the same dialogue comes up with local reporters. And I think you're definitely right that that would, it could become a little cyclical. And so again, that's why I feel like it's someone, when they choose to share that, it's someone that has to really feel strongly about who they are, about wanting to share it, and then also having the wherewithal to say, this is how much I want to talk about it. This is what I want to share. And 
I'm good. It might be someone who is very open and wants to be personable and tell us about uh, um, his boyfriend and what have you. Or it can be someone that says, this is who I am. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I've shared that much and I'm moving on. And that's where I think it's our job in the media to make sure that we are happy to meet them in that place where they are when they do choose to share that. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, for you being in the media yourself and on the with the tour, you know, you go to all the Grand Slam events, you go to the smaller tournaments as well. How has it been for you to be to be out? Have you noticed any issues for you? Uh, I mean, travel-wise, no. Uh, you know, I, we, we go to rather, you know, cosmopolitan first world places. I, I've always felt very comfortable in my travel and um, who I am as a person and, and being on the road a lot <laughs> uh, for my job. But yeah, I think there's been times where, and this is, I think if you're a queer person listening, you, you know that we all sort of harness this feeling of do I belong? How do I, what am I, um, where's my standing in these social situations? How do I make sure that I'm keeping myself safe, but also being authentic to who I am? And yeah, I think there's been times where I've really tried to figure out how to be my best authentic self in professional settings and how to make sure that I'm, you know, not, not necessarily giving up who I am just so that I can uh, get a good interview or so that I can feel like I'm fitting into a, a press scrum. And, you know, I think I maybe I'd feel a little bit more on the men's side, um, being a man myself and having sort of the uh, growing up as a young queer kid in Montana. But that's that's been really interesting to me just to kind of experience that in just the little isms. And then I'm not the one that has to go out and play in front of thousands of people or face the pressure of sponsors or the locker room um, coaches, federations, but it, it has been interesting for me just to, to try and be who I am on tour and not, not feel like I'm trying to overcompensate or change or shift. And, um, yeah, it's definitely been a learning curve. I, you know, I've been on tour off and on for seven years now, <clears throat> excuse me. And so it has been, I think I've, I've certainly learned a lot in that time. You do many sports, um, within the, your media profession. You mainly bounce between tennis and figure skating though. Hmm. Do you see a difference between maybe how you can act or how other media acts between the two sports? Uh, yeah, I, I, hmm. how media connects. That's an interesting question. I uh, think because obviously that... figure skating, lately it's been more open to gay skaters even though there's been skate, gay skaters for years. But tennis is obviously different with that respect. I see. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, you you look at in the last few years, there's been several skaters, Eric Radford, Adam Rapon, um, just in the last year or so, Karina Manta has come out as bisexual. Amber Glenn just came out, an American skater as pansexual. Randy, I, I think that the skaters have seen this moment of empowerment and they also, they've got these training centers and these teams that they work with often where they feel like they've got a good sense of community. I, you know, I think I, the slippery slope of is figure skating a gay sport? And I know you're not saying that whatsoever, but no, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get that. But, um, I, I think that the skaters have felt a little more emboldened and empowered to, to speak who they are and be who they are. Whereas, yeah, I don't think that the the culture right now in tennis offers that. Um, and whether that has to do with media or how that reflects to media, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, it's it's an interesting interesting time, I think, overall in sports where we look at who does feel empowered and who feels like they have the opportunity to to be who they are and speak out. And, you know, you look at the major American sports and it's still so so completely rare to have someone who feels comfortable to come out and say that they are a queer person. And um, I, I think that tennis sort of versus figure skating, I think tennis still kind of lands in that space. Yeah. And the reason why I ask is in the 90s, I worked at a nice rink. It was during the 96 U.S. Nationals when Rudy Galindo, hometown skater. Um, yeah. San Jose. Won, yeah. 
And so working with all the skating pros who would tell stories just about how as a gay skater, you couldn't be out because the judges would, would judge you differently, harsher if you're more feminine. And so now it's loosened up in that respect with ice skating. And so that's why it made me think to ask that question. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, you know, that's a lot of 20 years. I think a lot has changed. And I mean, even Brian Boitano, it took for him, at least publicly, to feel like he was comfortable in coming out uh, before the Sochi Olympics in 2014. And so, yeah, I think those there's those societal changes. And, and you mentioned figure skating and the judging. Yes, I think more and more skaters feel like they don't necessarily have to adhere to whether for a man it's being more masculine or for a woman it's being, you know, that princess, more feminine role. Mm -hmm. I think that skaters have felt much more that they're who they are on the ice. And, uh, uh, you know, Adam Rapon, I covered him from trying to qualify for Sochi and then finally qualifying for Pyeongchang over five years. And it really was a story of tapping into oneself. And the season that he had leading up to Pyeongchang, aside from nationals, he was so strong. He was so independent. He was, um, he had figured out who he was as a person and as a skater. And in a lot of ways, that was sparkly and beautiful and swan-like and, um, he didn't hold back from being himself on the ice. And I would say that's what got him to the Olympics. And I don't think he could have done that um, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I didn't, I wanted to sort of focus on tennis, but we got on figure skating, which I'm totally cool with. <laughs> and can skaters like Adam, where they're more artistic and they don't have the jumps, can they win? Uh, no, <laughs> quite honestly. Uh, so you've got, I mean, Adam's since retired, obviously, from from competitive skating, but you've got someone now like Jason Brown, the American, who um, has been working on a quad for the last few years, but hasn't necessarily shown it consistently in competition. But um, Nathan Chen, the American, is the standout uh, men's skater right now in the world. You've got Yuzuru Hanyu. And then I would say essentially to be competitive in the top 10 in men's figure skating right now, you've got to have a quad, if not two or three. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so for someone who's a little bit more artistic leaning um, and doesn't have that quadri of quads, no. They're just not going to factor into that top five in the world. But... They certainly could be competitive maybe in the top 10. And I also think that you've got that artistic expression that's happening in conjunction with the athletic um, prowess of the quads. You know, you've got you've got skaters. You look at Yuzu Hanyu, who a lot of people say is the greatest uh, male skater of all time. He is an incredible athlete with a variety of quads. But what a lot of people like to talk about and watch him for is his artistry and the mm -hmm. way that he expresses itself on the ice so it's kind of yeah it's kind of that um two-in-one package now yeah let's go back to tennis though because i could i don't want to spend all the time with figure skating even though i could easily <laughs> all good before we talk about all the pride events and and stuff like that i want to go over 2019 tennis really quick sure i want to compare the men's and women's sides because i've noticed that the men are still dominated by the top three guys um Federer, Nadal and Djokovic the women though they seem to be split more when do you think we're going to get that with the men's side I mean how long can the top three keep going yeah I mean it's the question that <clears throat> it's the question Randy we've been asking ourselves in tennis I think for I don't know the last five years you know there was a there's a time and a place in professional sports and especially in tennis when if you hit 30, that was starting to feel like, okay, I've got to wrap up my career. And the way that these athletes treat their bodies now, and uh, you know, you take men's tennis as a microcosm of it, they're just there's no answering your question because they're continuing to prove us wrong. I, I mean, I remember coming to the Australian Open uh, as a writer for USA Today five years ago, and Roger Federer lost in the third round to sort of a journeyman. And a lot of people were saying it's been three years since he won a slam. You know, he, he's not he's not playing at his top level anymore. He should retire 
or is he going to retire? And it took him another two years to to win another slam, and he won two more. Um, but he reinstated himself in that top three, and he never really fully went away. And I think the same goes for Rafael Nadal, who is now world number one, who won two slams last year. Novak Djokovic continues to prove himself as um, as the greatest of this era. I think a lot of people feel like that belongs to Federer. Uh, my thought or feeling is that Djokovic, if he stays healthy, is going to end up with the most slams among the three of them. Um, he has the best head-to-head record against all of his top rivals, and if that doesn't make you the greatest, I don't know what does. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think your question in the sense of when are, when are these the next generation of men's tennis players, the Dominic teams, Karen Hachinov, uh, Alexander Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas, when are they going to break through? It kind of goes hand in hand with the women's question of when is one or two or three females going to dominate the game the way that we've seen on the men's side. You know, you have apples, you want oranges. And mm-hmm. so on the men's side, we're in this amazing era of, of you know, uh, I almost said male figure skaters, of men's <laughs> tennis players that um, have dominated for so long, which is fantastic. And I actually think it's, you know, we're talking a little bit about the the queer aspect in tennis. I actually think it's a little bit of a mental thing where they get into these grand slams and because these great champions are still at the top of the game, they still feel like they belong there. They still feel like in the fourth round of the Australian Open that they should be into the quarterfinals and the semifinals. And it becomes a mind game and it becomes a, you know, tennis is so mental. You would know this as someone who played it as well. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the physicality and the talent. And these big, big events, you look at the Masters 1000s, the Premier Mandatories, the Grand Slams, it really does come down to how you're handling your emotions, how you're executing mentally, how you you know take a match by its throat and own it for yourself. Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, they're the best at it. Serena Williams is the best at it. Andy Murray, you could throw him in there as well. These are the players that have had these you know almost two decade long careers Federer and Serena even more so. And so that to me is why those players have been able to keep that stranglehold at the top. Do you think someone is going to break out on the women's side and really dominate? Or do you think just the way the top three or four are now, that's just going to be the battle they're going to have? Yeah, I I have no idea. (laughs) I mean, as someone who travels almost full time on tour, I I don't know. Um, Just this week in Australia, um, I'm in Brisbane, as I said. Um, we have Naomi Osaka, who won two Grand Slams in the last 15 months. Um, she lost in the semifinals yesterday. You've got a player like Ash Barty, who's currently the world number one. She's Australian. She won mm-hmm. the French Open and also the WTA Finals. Um, and then you've got Bianca Andrescu, the Canadian, who won the US Open. She beat Serena. Um, there are a lot of players who are kind of trying to jockey for that position. But it it hasn't necessarily been as consistent or as dominant on the women's side. And so, yeah, I I would be interested to watch maybe the next couple of years. Serena has obviously done a great job of hanging on the last few years to win as many slams as she has. Um, But I think this there is a feeling on the ground in tennis with both the men and the women that maybe there was just kind of that lost generation of players who weren't able to punch up against these great champions and maybe that this next generation can do so we've already seen slam winners as i mentioned andrescu bardi um osaka but um we haven't seen that on the men's side so i i think the next couple years are going to be very very interesting for sure do you think serena has a chance to get the record this year yeah of course Uh, she always has a chance well true (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I know what you mean. Um, so she's going after the all-time record. She currently has the open-era record, 23 major titles. Um, and she's going for number 24. She's been in four major finals since coming back from giving birth in September of 2018. Yeah, you know, it's it's just been, it's been interesting to watch. You know, Serena has... Um, she's playing another final today. Actually, we're recording this on Sunday, my time in Australia, Saturday, your time. So she's trying to still win her first title of any level since giving birth, which I think would give her, I think that would actually give her a lot of confidence going into the Australian Open. So mm-hmm. um, the, the people in the future who are listening to this podcast right now, <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll know if Serena won in Auckland or not. 
you know, the I think the chase for history has been tough on her. It, she faced it when she tried to go for 22 to um, tie Steffi Graf's open era record. She faced it when she was trying to tie Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett's record at 18 majors a few years ago. She got stuck at 17 for a few slams. We have not seen, though, Randy, a time when she made consistent finals and was not able to really, I mean, she's made, it has been four slams, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, um, both in 18 and 19, she made the finals. And in those four matches, she hasn't won a set. And so uh, to me now, it's a, a little bit of a, a mental thing for her to try to figure out how do I get to a final and treat it as any other match. And that's obviously not easy to do. <laughs> do you think tying the record in Australia and tying Margaret Court, do you think that adds to the pressure or doesn't affect? I mean, it's hard to say for her, but I'm sure for, I mean, for me, it would add to the pressure. Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's tough in Australia, especially because of all the attention on Margaret Court, who has the record. Um, Court's obviously a controversial figure mm -hmm. in tennis because of her um, clear outspokenness against the LGBT community. And this year is her 50 years since she won her calendar Grand Slam. Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion as to how Tennis Australia is going to honor her. And, um, you know, it, it's been layered in a lot of ways. But yeah, uh, I think actually the hardest slam for Serena is the US Open because of all the media attention mm -hmm. and the, the pressure there. Um, I think that maybe Australia would be a, a tiny bit under the radar for her. But yeah, I mean, Serena Serena faces pressure every match, right? I mean, she's the greatest of all time. She's Serena Williams. She's 38. She's still playing. She's a great champion. Um, uh, every match she goes on, if she loses, no matter if she's ranked first or 100th, it's going to be a major upset if she loses. And so that's the pressure that she's kind of dealt with in her career. And so I, I don't think it's too, too much different in Australia. We will have to see how she does. Mm, watch the space. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. And we're back with Nick McCarville on Level Playing Field Podcast. Let's go on to the Pride events. You started this with Brian in 2017, was it? Uh, 18, yeah. 18, okay. How did this start? Were this tradition of, it seems like all the slams now, you're having these LGBT events. And actually, could you briefly explain what they are? Yeah, sure. So in 2018, I partnered with Brian Vahaley, and we also had Casey Delacqua, who is um, now retired, but an Australian um, top women's player who was a top singles and doubles player, Grand Slam winner in doubles. We did a Pride event before the U.S. Open, and it was essentially a chance to meet the tennis and queer space in one. And um, Brian was kind enough to share his story with uh, an audience in New York. We had 200 people at um, Housing Works Bookstore, which is a great queer community space in Soho in New York. And Randy, I had been thinking for a couple of years of doing some sort of tennis meets queer event as a standalone or a series. And I had asked Brian, I had asked a few people actually to do something with me in the lead up to the 2018 US Open. And Brian was the one that said yes. And um, he was actually the perfect person to do it. We got Casey last minute, which was awesome. But it was really just a celebration of gay tennis. And um, Casey and Brian came and, and both shared their stories. I hosted it. We had two tennis drag queens there that um, well, they were a part of the program too. They did a Queers on the Street or a Queens on the Street um, <laughs> video for us where they went around New York and talked to people about um, out lesbians in uh, the history of women's tennis, which is really cool. But it, it basically was the idea of, and um, I don't knock you for asking me the question to start off this interview of, you know, why isn't there an out gay man, gay man in pro tennis? But to me, that's not, that's not the only piece of the discussion. And so I wanted to create this event series to show that there's people like me in the media and behind the scenes and in operations and agents. And uh, there's, there's a, a great, wonderful rainbow of a community in professional tennis that exists um, behind the scenes. 
And I wanted to give a couple of professional athletes the opportunity to speak to the public and share their stories. And it was just a, a chance to forward that conversation in a serious way, but then also to celebrate diversity and celebrate who we are. And um, we did a similar event last year at the Australian Open. Uh, Jason Collins happened to be down here. Jason and I are friends. So Jason came and spoke. We had Renee Stubbs. Um, Kevin Anderson's a top 10 tennis player. He came and showed his support um, as an ally to the community. We did another event at Wimbledon where Billie Jean King gave her time, which was fantastic, to a group of um, young people and young queer people from the London area and spoke about leadership and her experience as an out woman. Um, that I We partnered with the uh, All England Club at Wimbledon to host that. It was the first ever event that they had hosted on site for the AELTC to do that was massive. And then this last year, the USTA stepped in, having Brian Vahaley's on the board at the USTA. We took kind of that grassroots event from a bookstore in Soho, and we brought it onto a stage at the US Open. We had almost 500 people there. It was live streamed by the US Open. And um, we had an incredible panel, Randy. We had Adam Rapon, we had Billy Jean King, um, we had Billy Bean, the former baseball player, the MLB executive, Jason Collins was there. And then we also, of course, had Brian on stage and we had Kret Minen and Alison van Utvank. They are top women's tennis players. They're from Belgium and they made headlines uh, a couple years ago at Wimbledon when they shared a kiss after Alison's um, win over Garbinia Muguruza. And so it was really cool to have them there as, a rep as representatives of, um, you know, the current professional tennis. And they were also, if I remember correctly, the first girlfriends, I guess, to become partners, right? On the, in a tournament. Isn't that true? Or am I? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Doubles partners. Yeah. 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 And I, I saw the event that was on Facebook and Adam Rapone, of course, steals the show with just his personality, but it was a great, it was like what, 40, 45 minutes. Yeah. I have no idea how long it was because I was hosting it, um, <laughs> but I no, it, it was really cool, Randy. It was um, an opportunity to forward that conversation. Um, it was a little bit of a juggling act for me as host to try to get these points of view and perspectives and poignant questions to each of them. And how do you not sort of try to circle back to Billie Jean King after everyone's, you know, each person has spoken. But it was it was a really cool event and a, a lot of interesting perspectives shared. And I think one thing that will stick out to me from that is I've never hosted an event where every time someone spoke and when they wrapped up a thought, whether it was Adam Rapon making a joke or Alison Van Utvank talking about kissing her girlfriend or being doubles partners with the person she loves in a professional setting, there was an applause. Uh, the, the energy was fantastic in that room. That really stuck up out to me. And then I had the next day I had a USTA executive come up to me at the US Open, the tournament hadn't started yet. And um, they said to me, I didn't realize that there was so much to talk about. <laughs> and it, it was it was an innocent comment, but I actually took it. Um, I took it to heart because we didn't even touch on trans issues. We didn't talk about, uh, you know, issues that are really pressing right now in the queer sporting space. We kept it pretty surface level. And so for him to say that he didn't realize that there was that much to talk about, my hope is that that's the reason. Uh, that was almost, for me, validation of what I had started 14 months prior with, Brian, you know, talking to Brian Bahaley on the phone and saying, I want to do this event, is that there are executives and there are agents and there are players um, and there are a lot of people in the sporting and the tennis space that don't understand that these are conversa conversations that are worth having. And that if we can just chip away slowly at the block, that they're they're useful um, in having and doing and celebrating. And I know we were going to next talk about my Australian Open event. And if you don't mind, I just want to segue into it with that thought, because there's a lot of attention this year on Margaret Court and 50 years and her anniversary and the fact that she's going to be celebrated. And the bigger fact, um, Randy, is that there's still a arena at the Australian Open with her name on it. Mm -hmm. 
that arena is owned by the Victorian government, which is the state government that the Australian Open is held in. Melbourne's the city, Victoria's the state. The Australian Open doesn't own that building. They can't just simply change the name of a building. That is com hashtag complicated. <laughs> I, won't get, I won't get too deep into that. When we announced the Open for All event a few weeks ago, it's going to be this coming Friday um, before the Australian Open, I had a lot of people respond to me on Twitter to say, how dare you do something with Tennis Australia when they continue to support Margaret Court. And to me, from my perspective, and this is truly my point of view, is that you just can't take that perspective because if if we decide that one side is evil and that you know margaret court whatever her views are fine but that we're not going to celebrate who we are and we're not going to have an event where we get to talk about diversity and inclusion at tennis australia the groundbreaking research that they have funded themselves as an organization which will be discussed on friday we're going to have a celebration of an LGBT event called the Glam Slam, which is being held on Australian Open courts in the last few days of the AO. And we're inviting, and I know that we will have in attendance, a lot of people that I've mentioned within tennis, both that are queer and that are supportive of this movement. To me, that is a show of force. That is a show of community. That is a show of love. That is a show of encouragement that maybe, Randy, five or 10 years down the line, that tennis player that you asked about at the top of the show will feel like, oh gosh, I do have a family. I do have a support network. I do feel comfortable in coming out. And so there, it, it, it's going to be a loaded Australian Open, I think, in a lot of respects. But that's why I'm excited for this event this Friday. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, is it going to be streamed online, by the way? Um, I don't think so. We haven't we haven't discussed that. Um, I'm working in tandem with Tennis Australia again, and um, yeah, I'll keep you posted. That it would be yeah, it would be nice to make that happen. But uh, yeah, we haven't gotten to those details yet. <laughs> How, and I'm, I'll let you go in a few minutes, I just have a couple more questions. How surprised are you in the amount of growth you've had since the first event for what you're doing now in Australia and what I imagine you'll do the rest of the year um, with these open events? Uh, yeah, it's been really cool. Uh, um, you know, I, it's taken a lot of different people. Uh, you know, I think Brian and I sort of started in tandem, but I think that, yeah, to see the support from the USTA was huge last year. Um, Stacy Allister was really supportive from the professional tennis department at the USTA, um, as was Michael Fewer, who kind of oversees all the entertainment at the US Open. Um, to have the support last year at Wimbledon, that was massive. I did an event that same day that we had Billie Jean and the LGBT youth. I did an event that night for the WTA. And um, Richard Lewis is one of the executives for the All England Club. And I just went and said hi to him and I thanked him for supporting the event because he had, had been very proud of that event with Billie Jean. And he thanked me and also said similar to that USTA executive that it, he was so happy that we were having these discussions on Wimbledon grounds. And, and I think, you know, you, you look at the small things or the small marks that we all try to leave as people. I, I think that that's sort of the thing that makes me most proud of all of it is that we're encouraging discussion. We're maybe touching people that know this very well, that are part of the community, that aren't surprised that there's no out gay man in tennis or that there's plenty of women that have come out before. But we're also touching executives and people that haven't even thought about it whatsoever. And so to have that support from within the tennis world has has certainly been massive. Yeah. That's awesome. Let me uh, wrap up and ask you my final question. If you can go back in time and tell your 12 or 13 year old self something about your own sexuality to make it better for you, what would that one thing be? Ooh, ooh, we're closing with a therapeutic question. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that, well, at least for me, I think that I would look that kid in the eye and just tell him that it's going to be okay. I think that there was so much angst for me growing up in Montana and growing up in a, a place in a space that I wasn't sure that it was okay to be who I was. And, um, you know, there, there are plenty of bad things in life and we never know what's next. But someone recently told me uh, from a queer perspective to tell yourself the worst is over 
And that's really powerful. And I think at 12 and 13, I felt like I was in, quote, the worst. You know, I felt like I was so unsure of who I was. I was going through puberty. My body was awkward. I felt awkward. Um, I just didn't know that it was going to be okay. And I felt like I was going to exist in that worst for for a long time, maybe forever. I, I think that you know, that adolescent period is hard enough. And then for the, for the, for those of us that have the queer experience, it's maybe double or triple fold. Um, so yeah, I think a 13 year old Nick, it's going to be okay. Everything is going to be all right. And yeah, to embrace who you are, you know, I think we, sometimes I think we try to put our, um, who we are sexually or as queer people in nice sort of tied up bows for, you know, the non-queer community. And I, I think I would just tell him to celebrate who he is and, and not be, a, you know, there's a lot of shame, I think, for a lot of young kids growing up and, and that no sh shame needed in this space. <laughs> you know, I am a fan of yours. I, love tennis i love figure skating and to see you do all the stuff that you're doing it's awesome to see oh yeah um, thanks uh, no i appreciate it thanks for having me on the podcast thank you nick so much for coming on my podcast i had a lot of fun talking with you i will have links where you can follow nick in the show notes but without further ado here is my interview with rowan D'Souza, the organizer of the glam slam rowan thank you so much for for coming on and talking with me thank you for having me so this episode coming out tomorrow is going to have Nick McCarvel. I don't know if you know who he is. I do know Nick McCarvel. I'm a, a big fan and he's a big supporter of us here in Melbourne at the Glam Slam as well. He came out last year to our launch and he will actually be hosting. Uh, he'll be uh, he'll be doing our emceeing for our finals, which is in Show Court 3 uh, which at Melbourne Park, which is a 3,000-seat stadium that we're renaming Pride Arena for the day. So we're nice. very happy to have him. We spoke on Saturday, and obviously Glam Slam is brought up. We talk mm -hmm. about a little bit about it, but I wanted to go in a little bit more detail. Um, sure. Before we do, though, can I just get a brief intro to who you are and how you got involved with the Glam Slam? So the Glam Slam didn't exist until uh, a few years ago, but what happens is, is um, I'm a member of the Vic Tennis, which is an LGBTIQ plus tennis group here in, in Melbourne, Australia. And a few years ago, I was lucky enough to travel to some GLTA, uh, Gay and Lesbian Tennis Alliance, um, tournaments around the world. And it just occurred to me that it might be a good thing to do that in Melbourne as well. So um, I came back, got onto the, our committee. We're a not-for-profit organisation. And uh, we started running some tournaments. And we're lucky here in Melbourne, for your listeners who don't know Melbourne, Melbourne's a great sporting city. We're a city for about five million. But we have a, a proud sporting tradition and, you know, we've hosted the Olympics, we host a Grand Prix, we host a Grand Slam. Um, we, you know, and we actually really take our sport uh, very seriously. We have great sporting facilities right here in the city centre. And what I realised was that, you know, well, maybe we need to start playing tennis, uh, more associated with the, with the Australian Open around that time. And I was lucky enough to be able to secure some courts just on the edge of Melbourne Park where they play, where they play the Australian Open. And um, it's just grown from there. So this is going to be our uh, third edition of the Glam Slam. And it's the second one that it's actually integrated into uh, the Australian Opens. And what that means is that we've partnered uh, with Tennis Australia, which is similar to the USTA. It's the same organisation. It's the mm -hmm. governing body here in Australia. And what they do is they run the, the Australian Open and they're very keen on diversity and inclusion and they actually have a department uh, that deals with in, uh, inclusion and diversity as well. And we've partnered and worked very hard with them and they've been very, very supportive. So we now host over 200 players in a GLTA-sanctioned event uh, at Melbourne Park. It's the only, it's the only uh, event of its type in the world. And what it allows us to do is to really... Um, not only give our players, uh, the people who play, a great opportunity and, and an opportunity to thrive in, you know, on the biggest sporting stage, but it also gives us an opportunity to um, to advocate for diversity and inclusion across the board and, and to provide a positive uh, a positive event where people can, um, you know, see that that we belong and, and just raise LGBTIQ plus issues as well. And so the Glam Slam uh, Festival, it's January. 31st through the February 2nd, right? Finals weekend? Well, well the Glam Slam, really, we have a number of events, like practice events, warm-up events, that sort of thing as well. But the tournament itself starts on a Thursday the 30th, and we go to um, 
Sunday the 2nd of February. And then so what exactly is it? I mean, it's obviously it's a tournament. We've briefly talked about that. But what else are you guys doing? So a lot of your listeners will be aware of the GLTA. So we run tournaments and they're very well run with ranking points and things like that. But also, you know, what's really important is one of the things we recognize is because we're amateur tennis players um, of all different ages and all different abilities, what's really important is the social aspect. So we have player accreditation. So what we do is we get players uh, on site at Melbourne Park and we have a series of engagement events. So we, we take advantage of the amazing entertainment and hospitality um, offerings here at Melbourne Park. So, and it's a great way for people to meet other people. And I've met people from all around the world. And we have 35 different countries represented. We have a big contingent from, the, from North America, from Canada, from the US. And it's an opportunity where people can, you know, get together and meet people and form lifelong friends and just to, to boost their confidence and to give them an opportunity to, to play. And, and one of the things we're focusing on is we're providing not only a safe space, but we're also providing a space where people can thrive. Awesome. And this year you're really focusing on women's participation, right? Yeah, because in all sports, women's participation lags behind men's sports in every sport. And the first two editions of the Glam Slam, we out of 170 players, we had eight women both years. And one of the things we work, we've worked with with First Tennis Australia, and then also we have states in Australia, just like you do. And our state government here in Victoria uh, has an organisation called Change Our Game, which focuses on increasing women's participation. So we applied for and got a grant uh, from them to run a series of engagement events. So we ran LGBTQI women. Uh, engagement events and at one of them we had Yelena Dokic come and, and do on-court stuff for the women we had dedicated women's spaces and and when we say women here we talk about anyone who identifies as a woman so transgender people who want to join us are perfectly okay non-binary people can join us in any division that they want as well so we've been able to inc increase that to the largest uh, women's participation in any tournament in the Asia Pacific and we, for the first time in the Asia-Pacific, we have guaranteed women's spaces and we have women's draws in the singles and we have mixed doubles as well. And we've been really pleased that the women have uh, embraced our um, uh, embraced our initiative. And we have 30 women playing, which is a huge improvement. And so what do you hope to get out of this tournament? I mean, obviously, an amazing time, uh, fun tennis, challenging tennis, but what else are you trying to get out of this Oh, personally or uh, personally? Uh, well, both. Oh, I mean, a, as an okay. organization and for you personally. Oh, again, personally, I, uh, I'm the type of personality who just enjoys uh, giving it a go and seeing what can be done. I never expected the Glam Slam to be what it is now. You know, it's it's a huge event. Organisationally, what I've realised, particularly getting involved with the women's participation, um, I've realised that the Glam Slam can be really a, a force for good. So looking at women's participation in sport, um, looking at the things that, that, that where the areas where women have faced barriers to uh, participation and inclusion, I've learnt a lot uh, of that over this year. Uh, also looking at uh, you know, looking at opportunities for people to play. I've realised the Glam Slam can actually provide a, an environment for people to really um, to, to really come out of their shell. Now, one thing your listeners may or may not be aware of is that we have um, some issues with uh, a former player who's actually uh, won the most Grand Slams out of any human being in history, Margaret Court, mm -hmm. and it's her 50th year this year. And look, and one of the things that we have to, one of the things I really um, have focused on is that Margaret Court is not a threat to us, and though her words and her statements uh, are, are very, uh, are very offensive and, and very, uh, very impolite. Actually, um, we don't. We can counter that because we can't necessarily change her. Or uh, we have a, a very important uh, concept in Australia of freedom for speech, which I know you value in America as well. So she has the right to have her freedom of speech, and she has the right to have her views. But we also think that if if you want to uh, use your platform to spread the views that cause actually a hurt and also cause pain in the community, we have the opportunity to provide a counterbalance to that. And our message is not one where we go into war with her. Our message is one of positivity and showing that, that we do belong and that these are practical events where, we can, where people can come and enjoy and actually make Michael Quarter relevant. And you met her, right, back in November? Yes, I was lucky enough to be invited to the uh, Fed Cup final, Australia versus France. Unfortunately, Australia didn't get over the line, but Ash Barty, you know, and Sam Stroza played an amazing game of tennis and it was beautiful women's tennis. It was beautiful tennis. And Margaret Court cut a very lonely figure because with her comments, you know, like, rightly so, not just our community, but the entire community sees her 
her her influence as, as one of as quite counterproductive uh, to you know the, the thousands of people across Australia who want to promote the game of tennis. So she cut quite a lonely figure. And I realised that, you know, being the LGBTI tennis guy, I was the only one who could speak to her. So I just went up to her, I introduced myself, I told her what I did. And, you know, I explained to her that, of course, we recognise her as, you know, the greatest uh, tennis player by a number of tournaments, uh, one, Grand Slams one. Uh, and, you know, also that I actually said, you know, you realise you did a lot for women's tennis. Um, but I said to her, you know, some of the things that you have been reported to say cause a lot of pain in society. And, and the main thing it does that I see the negative effect it does is it actually stops people from playing tennis. And I said to her, I know that's not what you want because I know that you put a lot of time into tennis. And, you know, Riker Court is 78 years old now and or thereabouts. I might have got that wrong. But she's 78 and she's, you know, physically relaxed and she did, she smiled and she said thank you. Um, I, I don't know if the words had an impact or not, but it was nice to actually just engage with her and see the human. You know, often mm -hmm. we make... Um, particularly in this world of, of communication, which is digital, uh, we make opinions, we form opinions of people based upon uh, their media presence and what they say in media and the narrative that the media weaves about them as well. And that's always, you know, meeting face-to-face -face is, 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 uh, is a very different thing. And, and she's not an evil person. She's not a terrible person. Um, she has some misguided or some outdated views. She, has, she maybe speaks out of turn. She says some terrible things. But I think there's a, there's a chance there for Margaret Court to um, you know to really uh, to really come on board and go on a journey where she comes where where you know she comes to acceptance as well uh, to of us and I think that's an opportunity she has the ball is in her court uh, pardon the pun yeah <laughs> that was nice I appreciated it no that's that's all right. keep the listeners entertained <laughs> I know you have squeezed us in between uh, patients. Yes, uh, I, I, so I do have it, to go in a few minutes. I do yeah, do you that. have anything else you'd like to add before I let you go? Oh, look, you know, I really think I've, 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 I'm now on the board of the GLTA and I, I really encourage everyone, uh, all of your listeners, to consider play, playing a GLTA tournament. So it's glta.net. And there are some amazing events, many in the US, and there's some amazing volunteers all around the world who really spend a lot of time putting on amazing events. And these things do bring people together. They, these, these things, these, these events uh, change people's lives and they just give us a, a great focus that adds and, and adds a new dimension to our life, that of sport and that of participation and that of socialization. I really encourage everyone, no matter what your experience with tennis is, I would really encourage everyone to come and play a GLTA tournament, either here in Australia or around the world. Nice. Thank you so much for doing this. It was That's a scramble, but I, I, I appreciate it so much. Oh, it's, it's never a problem, Randy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rowan, for coming on the podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing how this goes the last week of Australian Open. That is my episode for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode. 